Hey everyone, back again. Today I'm going to talk about Francis Fukuyama's text, The End of History, the text speech version, not the entire book. But before jumping into it, hi, I'm David. I explain philosophical texts, concepts, ideas, and ways to make them accessible to you. So if you're new here, you can see 300 episodes I already have up, more than that. You can subscribe and see videos I release every single week, sometimes twice a week, every Saturday, precisely. If you found this as a podcast, you're going to be able to find the video for it on YouTube. If you found me on YouTube, you're going to be able to find just the audio for this on pretty much any podcast platform under all the same uh, titles and names if you just prefer the audio. If you like what I do and want to help me out, you can like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. They might get a kick out of it. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure to do that. If you want to follow me elsewhere, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo. You can also find me on TikTok at theory philosophy if you're into that at all. Links for all such things in the description. And yeah, every time I keep this intro up to a minute, and now I'm going over it to explain it to you, but just so you know in the future, if you ever just want to skip it, the minute mark is where you can jump back in. Anyways, Francis Fukuyama's The End of History, which is either, at best, Francis Fukuyama's demonstration of his lack of understanding of Hegel, history, and geopolitics, or at worst, it's just his effort to spread conservative propaganda to an academic audience, which... I didn't necessarily know. You know, I had just a general idea about what this text was about. I didn't really know how deeply immersed he was in the neoconservative movement within the United States. He was an ardent supporter of Ronald Reagan, of George Bush for a time. He then supported Barack Obama. But, you know, even me, uh, a Canadian, you know, left-wing politics in the United States is like essentially our conservative politics. Like it's very, (laughs) you know, to, to really put it quite bluntly. But in any case, it's important to understand his political affiliation because it very much informs this text, which he tries to veil underneath a strange concern and misplaced and misunderstanding of Hegel. Tries to understand American supremacy on the world stage and its values that it apparently embodies as being superior to those of other countries. Now to begin, he suggests that we have to distinguish between what he suggests is the actual objective movement of world history versus just spontaneous or exceptional events within that history. So when he says this, what what he's suggesting is that over the course of human history, there's been a direction, a trajectory from one point to another eventually culminating into liberalism and liberal democracy as embodying and engendering what he calls the end of history or marking that end of history. Everything else he suggests, all other ideological viewpoints, authoritarianism, communism, fascism, are all relics of history. Whereas liberal democracy is the point in which we have arrived at the crystallization of perfect human social relations in market capitalism. And therefore, we have we, we no longer need to argue about anything. We've essentially made it as far as human history goes. So when he distinguishes between haphazard type events that occur, he's just saying that these are exceptions within the broader movement of the world towards liberalism liberalization and liberal democracy. Now we saw this play out in the 20th century where many superpowers embodying different 
ideological views were battling one another, where with World War II, it was fascism versus liberalism, fascism versus democracy. And then later on, it would be the Cold War, it would be communism versus democracy versus liberalism. Now to him though, it would be wrong to say that liberalism's victory in all of these conflicts was just a coincidence. He says instead that its victory was due to the fact that it was so seductive that it must be a natural endpoint or a natural point of desire for the entire world, which is why these other systems could not compete. So as an example, he says this, you know, we see this play out because there are TVs, color TVs in China, people in Japan listen to rock music, people in Tehran listen to rock music and watch cartoons, and he's using consumer goods as an example of the triumph of liberalism throughout the world. Now I'm flagging this for you, not just because it's what he says, but because it is the start of his contradictory argument. He does not understand even what he is saying in respect to the triumph of liberalism on the world stage and its relationship to the economic means of production that underwrite it, that is capitalism. So he suggests that because we see people in China watching color TVs, this is somehow evidence of the triumph of liberalism. So these are all signs of the end of ideological battles, the end of history for Fukuyama. Now he acknowledges though that this idea about the end of history is not new. Going all the way back to Karl Marx, a similar idea was there, where Marx suggested that humans were going to go through various stages to arrive finally at communism in which basic human needs would all be met and people could allocate their time and energy to things that actually meant something beyond just providing for themselves. They could concern themselves with culture, art, beauty, music, things that you know really move the human spirit, not just trying to supply for their immediate needs. Now, Fukuyama takes this to say that Marx was just wrong. In fact, the end point is capitalism. But Fukuyama goes even further back to suggest that this idea about the end of history can actually be found in Hegel. And Fukuyama's approach to Hegel is not necessarily through Hegel himself. It is actually through the work of Alexandre Kohev from France. And Kohev is definitely, or Kohev, actually embodies a certain strand of Hegelian thought, certainly a conservative approach to it as far as its embrace of these values of liberalism as they would dovetail and connect with financial market capitalism. But in any case, Fukuyama's understanding of Hegel is motivated primarily through Kojev's understanding of Hegel, which is just only one, of course, interpretation. And it just highlights a limitation of Fukuyama's thought, not actually engaging with the text that he is proclaiming to speak the good word of. That is Hegel's phenomenology of spirit. So in Hegel's phenomenology of spirit, for those that don't know, and I've covered it in its entirety, I've also covered a ton of marks if you're interested in that. What Hegel says, to be very short, uh, very brief, is to suggest that human history has gone through various different stages. And the end point of this history is to arrive at a point, and, and I'm being very reductive here, but it is to essentially arrive at a point in which there is an acknowledgement of the separation between individuals and respect for that separation, acknowledging that it is precisely in the fact that human beings are atomized and separated from one another that we can establish a common ground in our being separated from one another. And this opens the door for mutual respect, which can flourish into 
uh, competitiveness and into individual growth. Now the same thesis can be extended to nation states where Hegel would imagine that there needs to be a respect of atomized, individualized nation states that have their own autonomy. You can't just encroach upon it. And it is through that respect in recognizing these differences between nation states that the world can grow in its own developed way. Now what has to be respected is this acknowledgement of their difference, of their being separate from one another. Now it's really important to also acknowledge that Hegel was very religious and at the end of the phenomenology of spirit he suggests that this can't just really happen on its own, there needs to be the intervention of Catholicism essentially. Christianity needs to, or Christianity I should say, Christianity should really also be involved here because it is a religion in which there is the possibility to posit an exteriority to all human uh, existence while also recognizing its attachment in the form of Jesus Christ, a human figure in the world. So the point is that there is a connection to a beyond while also being grounded in the real, in, in the material. So the point that Kojève really points to or really clings onto here is this respect of autonomy, a respect that each state has its own autonomy to do what it wants and it can't encroach upon another country's autonomy. Now similarly the same values should be embraced in every single nation where everybody is respected in their own autonomy. You cannot encroach upon any individual citizen's autonomy nor upon anybody else's. So this would automatically open the door for uh, Republican values as far as we understand them in the European sense, respect for uh, people's capacity to reason, to come to bring their own ideas to a public sphere and then engage and debate those ideas in order to push that society forward for the betterment of everyone while respecting everyone's autonomy. So this is Fukuyama's idea of Hegel through Kojève, which is limited, there's a lot more to it, but this is what he cherry picks for his argument. Now Kojev, just to add a little more, Kojev focuses really specifically on the French Revolution, being French himself of course, and the values of liberty and equality that necessarily came with it as demonstrating Hegel's vision for the end of history, for the point in which humans have fully respected each other's individual autonomy and recognized the necessity of autonomy for themselves and for others in order for them to attain a higher order of being. Now it's ironic. Fukuyama, a conservative, very much willing to take away people's rights to their own bodies, to choose what happens with their own bodies. Ironic, very ironic, but in any case, you can say whatever you want, I guess. Now, Fukuyama rationalizes all these conflicts that may have occurred after the French Revolution between various nation states as just being aberrations, like the World Wars, for example. But a little bit more precisely, he suggests that these conflicts were born out of liberalism's desire because it was the superior ideological system. It wanted to extend itself throughout the world, which all of the other systems that he believed were caught in history, fascism, communism, anything like that, would oppose and then resisted. Now, in the case of communism, he makes a very interesting point, really drawing upon Marx's influence in communism. Where within Marx, if anyone is not so clear about it, um, or not so sure about it, what Marx says is that ideology is going to be primarily motivated by the economic conditions that make that ideology possible. So in short, 
he divides society into what is called the base and superstructure. The base is the economic conditions of that society, and the superstructure is everything on top of it. Culture, art, politics, religion, everything like that only happens after people have met their basic needs, which happens economically. You do it in the market by supplying for yourself in whatever economic conditions you live in. So for Marx, the economy is the determining factor to culture and ideology. Now, Fukuyama's understanding of it is the reverse, and him drawing from Kojev and drawing from Hegel, Kojev's reading of Hegel, is to say that ideas, ideology can actually motivate the economy, where people can recognize the value of capitalism for Fukuyama and then say, oh, well, we can just do this instead. You know, we can choose this. It's not as though we are being determined by capitalism. I can look at it, say it looks good, or liberalism, and then adopt it. I am not totally beholden to the economic conditions that I exist in. And there is some value to this point in that it doesn't just say that people are totally beholden to their economic conditions. There is room for creative capacity beyond it. However, it demonstrates a fundamental misunderstanding of Marx's ideas because he uses this. Fukuyama uses this idea to suggest that this is why people in communist countries were fundamentally dissatisfied. Their propensity for critical thought was undervalued. Instead, what was advocated for was a movement, an economic movement, that would make society better, which he says people were, didn't want. People wanted a life of the mind. They wanted to be able to think. They wanted to be able to exist uh, ideologically. But here he is simply conflating those moments in which communism emerged with what Marx said. And for those of you out there that are definitely typing your reactionary fingers away, you'd say, well, oh, you're one of those people who say that those weren't real examples of communism, to which I say yes. When Marx wrote about the advent of communism, he was very clear that certain conditions had to be met for it to occur organically. One, capitalism needed to provide society in the world with the conditions to end work, work as it is understood as exploited labor. This means elevating human consciousness on how to be productive, raising, you know, increasing the amount of possible automation, increasing people's understanding of the economy. People needed to be educated. They needed to know how to read and write as well. But when communism emerged in all of these different states, be it Russia, China, Vietnam, or, and including others, so many of these instances, the population wasn't totally literate. The population didn't have a full grasp of scientific socialism, as the term would be called. And so what it just devolved into was a kind of authoritarianism where people were being told this movement was being forced under the head or under the rule of often single tyrants, be it Stalin or Mao or whoever. And in those cases, it would create a situation in which people were beholden not to the actual movement of human history in terms of the economy, but instead they were beholden to a single tyrant's vision of how this should work, how people should exist in that world, which is not how Marx envisioned this process moving. It would be run by the workers, not a single leader head who's going to decide how these things unfolded. So in that case, no, these examples are not demonstrative of Marx's vision for communism. 
which Fukuyama, of course, does not understand. Fukuyama is instead internalizing popular ideas about what communism is and Marx's influence on it that he probably got from his Republican friends or Republican multi-billion dollar media that was telling him what to think about these things. It doesn't really seem fully informed by either an engagement with Marx, this is certainly not quoted here, or with Hegel, really, to understand how these processes, how world history moves organically, and when it is forced, of course, it is going to devolve into very oppressive systems, like fascism, like totalitarianism. So all this to say that Fukuyama prioritizes the realm of ideology and ideas over that of the economy. To say that people are actually motivated by thought and by being seduced by ideas more than they are just by the economic conditions they find themselves in. Now, to be fair to Fukuyama, he's also critical of those hyper-capitalists on Wall Street because he suggests that for them, we see a similar attempt to just reduce the world to its material components in terms of earning profit, of extracting value from people. Instead of understanding or really giving, lending credence to the value of life of the mind, of ideology, of culture, instead just being focused on these uh, material pursuits. However, in his concern here, we also are going to be open to another contradiction that will become apparent. And that is a weird concern with culture, with cultural values as being greater than those of the economy. While later on, he's going to say that, well, no, the end of history marks the end of culture, the end of values, and we're just going to totally embrace this weird new economic system as the determining factor. And, you know, if you're having trouble following, welcome to the club. It's just, he, he's just not clear. He's, it's, he, he wants to have it both ways. He wants to have both the culture be the determining factor, people in China watching color TVs, for example, buying color TVs, <laughs> people in Japan listening to Beethoven, all cultural things, while also crediting capitalism with motivating these things, which sounds to me like he's really pointing to the economy as being the determining factor here. But in any case, we have to just try and decipher what he's trying to say. So more precisely, his view about capitalism is to say that it is almost like the strong man of liberalism. It just tries to spread the good word of liberalism, tries to just make it seem as though liberalism is good. It gives people things they want. And they say, well, it's attached to liberalism. Capitalism is attached to liberalism. So yeah, for sure, this is something we have to adopt. Of course, like this would be amazing. But of course, not everyone submits to these ideas. And in order to write these other oppositional ideas off, he just says that they're strange. Like they don't make any sense. Like Russian opposition or Chinese opposition or Vietnamese opposition in the Vietnam War or Cuban opposition, like all of these different countries. He says that these people, they're, they're just strange. It just doesn't make sense. They're just trying to oppress themselves. Uh, they need to eventually just come into the spectral light of liberalism to the end of history and they will live happy, joyous lives. Of course, forgetting that people in the United States can't afford rent, people in the United States can't access health care, people in the United States, primarily women, don't have access to, in many different states, uh, to choose what happens to their own bodies, which is just a direct infringement upon this Hegelian idea of respecting autonomy and others. But, you know, these people like to cherry pick what is convenient for their propaganda machine instead of actually applying the very intricacies of this thought universally, which of course would mean them undoing or opposing their political affiliations and the 
people who they're in bed with, the corporations they're in bed with. Now back to the 20th century and back to history of the world wars, he suggests that fascism was an effort to try to counter the chaos that it viewed liberalism to contain, where people were unordered. So fascism was just a reaction to try to impose order to make people really see the value of, of a systematic way of thinking and living in the world. To which he says that defeating Nazi Germany was one way to end that, and also, you know, killing a few hundred thousand innocent civilians in Japan was another way to end that, which is good job, liberalism, because he's saying this was really indicative of, this happened under the auspices of liberalism, uh, a really horrendous event for which nobody really was held accountable. Civilians killed civilians, hundreds of thousands, dead. But this perfect system. Now in terms of communism, for him, he believed that communism viewed liberalism and capitalism as in still containing these contradictions. How Marx saw it was that there was a contradiction between workers and capitalists, where capitalists were taking money from workers that they were actually giving back to the capitalists in the form of their labor, and they were being underbought. Labor power was being underbought, and so therefore we are existing in an untenable system that is unsustainable, because people People's value is constantly going to be extracted greater than it's going to be put back in. And there's going to be a drying up pool of possible laborers, which is going to mean that there's going to be a drying up pool of possible consumers and the whole system will crash and capitalism will repeatedly crash. And this is what Fukuyama believes that the communists thought about capitalism. Now, he says that actually the communists here were wrong because America actually realized, created the system that Marx envisioned, like a classless society. He actually says this, it, he, <laughs> that America created the conditions that Marx envisioned as a more equal society, creating equal society and says that, yeah, sure, there's uh, income inequality, but things are so much better. And he's just falling victim to the idea of things being better and conflating it with the with things being even better. He's suggesting that, oh, well, they're better than they were a few hundred years ago, so therefore, uh, we don't need to do anything more. We've arrived at the end of history, things are perfect, which is just a way to naturalize the current state of affairs, to naturalize the ongoing oppression of uh, lower classes, of black, Hispanic people within the United States, and to make it seem as though these people are living their best lives, which is, very much not the case en masse. These people are being exploited and the system is largely to blame for that. Now to get around this, he says that in the case of the ex exploitation of black people in the United States, this has less to do with liberalism and more to do with legacies of slavery that came before it that he says were wrong. And he also criticizes colonialism. And it's a very convenient way to get around criticism by saying that anything wrong in this system, like income inequality, like women not having access to their own bodily autonomy are just aberrations. And we can't take them as indicative of the system itself, which is very convenient. And it's funny that the same line of argumentation does not actually apply to other systems as well. Of course, I don't want to live under a fascist system, like, duh. But if you're going to be mounting this type of critique, you have to be very much prepared to acknowledge why your exceptions are more valuable or, you know, we don't need to take them as seriously as the exceptions within another kind of system. And it just demonstrates a weakness of his argument.
Now, consumerism for him was a driving factor to push people towards liberalism. But if you're hearing me correctly, uh, then you might say, well, I thought that the economy was not really a determining factor. But he says, in, in his words, economic reform doubled Chinese grain output, which gave Deng Xiaoping a solid political foundation. So what he's saying here is that the economy and the economic conditions of that system motivated political and ideological views. You know, it's, it's like, what, what is he saying? I don't know. If somebody can clarify this, I would really love for you to, because it's a, it's, a, it's a mystery, real big mystery to me. And other historical events within the 20th century, like Gorbachev in the Soviet Union in the late 80s, uh, and, you know, it's, it's important to note as well that this text came out in 89, right before the Berlin Wall fell, uh, you know, very much to his uh, pleasure. He was, he could say, look, I was right. Like the end of communism, the end of the Soviet Union, we've won. That's what would happen. And so he could claim to have been this kind of like prophetic figure. Anyways, in the 80s, late 80s, Gorbachev essentially lightening up two nearby liberal democracies, not trying to impose Soviet Union values upon them. And he takes this as a sign of liberalism's victory and the way in which communism in the Soviet Union could not claim to be a superior system in any way, but just a blip on the course of human history. And it's also just so narrow. I mean, human history is so long and capitalism has been around for like 400 years. And it's, if, if that, and we take it to be this like end point. And human history extends like tens of thousands of years. Like it, it's just, what? But in any case, that's what we have here. Now, of course, there are still gonna be oppositions to this system in the form of like religious opposition, be it like Christian, for him, Christian fundamentalism or Islam are gonna oppose challenges to this system. But he says that because they are religious in nature, they don't ever claim to be universal because it's only gonna to apply to people who follow that religion. So he says that they are no alternative to a universal system or what he calls a universal homogenous state that is liberalism. The same applies with nationalism that poses challenges to liberalism, which is probably how he would rationalize what's going on in like Russia now. It's just uh, hyper nationalism or in China that isn't actually seeking to expand itself universally, but is just trying to protect its own values, which sounds to me actually like Hegel's vision playing itself out. But he rationalizes it and suggests that these are aberrations and they'll eventually come into the spectral light of advanced market capitalism and that'll be it. Now, like I mentioned earlier, he is critical of the history of colonialism as being an effort toward territorial aggrandizement, that is expansion to other countries and imposing values on others. He says that this is wrong and this history was wrong. But it's ironic because like we'd see under the Bush administration that he supported um, the imposition of American values on the people of Iran, Afghanistan, Iraq, and not to mention the hundreds of thousands of dead civilians there, the hands of Americans as well. Uh, but the, this is the ideological views he supports. And how does he rationalize them in terms of this liberal respect for other nations, sovereignty, sovereign nations? Hard to say, hard to say. It's almost as though he would need to rethink his thesis almost as though he was just flat out wrong here and we shouldn't take him seriously in any respect. 
And then in a very mysterious way at the end of the text, he suggests that there would be no more art, no more philosophy because we've essentially arrived. We've, we've figured out this system. But even to me, if we fully embrace this idea, like even if we suspend all doubt or all suspicion about the integrity of his argument and say, market capitalism, liberalism, we've arrived. These things are not settled science. Like the way in which capitalism is gonna function is not the same everywhere. The amount of government, government intervention, for example, is going to have, a, have an effect. The way the involvement with other neighboring states is gonna have an effect. And these have to be argued, these have to be debated in any case. Even the limits of or the conditions of liberalism, like how in the states right now, uh, half the population's right to their own bodies have been taken from them. They, they don't get to choose what happens to their individual selves, which is ironic, but in any case, this is the liberalism that he uh, really champions. And that's pretty much it of Fukuyama's The End of History. The, you know, there are minute details. There's the whole book, which I'm not going to cover because it's just the same thing said on repeat. Historical evidence used to really justify his point. Um, but yeah, if anyone was curious about what this guy was saying, now you know. If there's anything I got wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it. I asked some questions there. Do you buy it? Like, what, what do you think about this? Because I'm not convinced. But in any case, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe. See you next week.